Welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name is Ryan. My name's Brent. And this episode, we're talking about SST-27, Husker Du, Zen Arcade. Oh, man. Yeah. This is huge. And right off the bat, we're going to mention that in honor of Zen Arcade being released on the same day as Double Nickels on the Dime by the Minutemen, we're going to be releasing that episode on the same day as this one. So right after you listen to this, make sure to go to our feed and listen to Double Nickels. And it's really hard not to talk about both of these releases at the same time. And they're both very well-documented releases. We'll go through kind of the very well-known factoids and kind of the history, but we also have, for this episode, a special guest, Brandt. Yeah, Paul Hilkoff. He runs uh, the Husker Du database, thirdav.com, thirdav.com. And uh, we'll put a link to that in the notes at the bottom of this podcast, but it is just an amazing collection of uh, Husker Du flyers, set lists, articles from magazines, uh, photographs. It's it's pretty overwhelming, but in a really good way. Yeah. I, I must admit, I mean, I was very impressed when I, when I stumbled across it. I mean, I, I stumbled across it years ago and have been back a few times. And uh, most recently when we were working up the Eight Miles High episode, um, I mean, that's where we found the gig poster, right? Yes. Yeah, um, on that note, I did ask Paul if I could grab some images off his website and use them on our Instagram, which everyone should check out. It's You Don't Know Mojack. It's pretty easy to find. And I found some great stuff. So all this week we're going to be posting Zen Arcade-related pictures from uh, all stuff that we pulled off his website. Well, not all of it. We'll feature some stuff from our collection as well. But the stuff that uh, is off Paul's site, I'll, I'll make sure to mention that. Yeah, awesome. Really happy that Paul was willing to participate and contribute because, I mean... The guy uh, knows a lot about this stuff. Puts me to shame, that's for sure. And totally. uh, uh, I hope we can have him back again because he was a great interviewee. Um, we'll hear from him in a bit. Before we get into the release, Brant, I don't know if you had any spiels before we get going. I'll uh, throw Not it over to week. you to start. I'm good this week. Nope. No spiels. Yeah, I'm ready yeah. to rock. Yeah, I, I must admit, I've just been listening to Zen Arcade and Double Nickels all week and I'm just yeah so pumped about it before we get into the first history lesson now that I mention it I do want to say one thing like now that I've been listening to these two records back to back all week long um, and again it's really hard not to think about them at the same time Zen Arcade is not my favorite Husker Du record but it is an incredibly important Husker Du record. Uh, it's interesting when I was reading up for it, uh, there are comments from Grant Hart and Bob Mould about how Zen Arcade means more to others than it does to them. It's kind of like any old Husker Du record to them, and some of their later ones are more important to them. And it was interesting when I was thinking about it. I mean, you were mentioning the other day on the My War episode that that's not just your go to Black Flag album. That's one of your go-to albums, right? Yep. That's kind of how Double Nickels on the Dime is for me. Zen Arcade is has, has never really been that album for me in the Husker Du catalog. I'm, all, I'm more of a Flip Your Wig or New Day Rising guy, but I have gained much more of an appreciation for it on listening to it this time around. I don't know if, if you had the same experience, Brant, on Zen Arcade. Uh, well... I'm a flip your wig guy. It's the first one I got. So, um, but I've always loved Zen Arcade. I guess you could say I've got a new appreciation for it. I have my favorites. So I listen to a lot of music on my phone at work and I just took out all the chaff (laughs) as, uh, Mike Watt would say, and just put the hits on there or the stuff, you know, you know, took out all the, the jams and stuff like that and Hare Krishna and that. And uh, I was rocking that 
all week and just loving it. So this is a great album for sure. Yeah, but I mean, you know that book uh, that Andrew Earls wrote, Husker Du, the story of the noise pop pioneers who launched modern rock. Um, you talk about taking off the chaff, and we'll get into that on the Double Nickels episode, obviously. Um, bit of a spoiler alert there. Andrew Earls was saying, you know, he was talking about the extra stuff on Zen Arcade, the stuff that's not really songs, the stuff that's kind of part of the concept album. And his quote was, voicing a negative opinion about Zen Arcade is equivalent to racism in certain circles. And I thought that that was a pretty strong comment, but it does speak to Zen Arcade being like bigger than the songs, right? Yeah. It's 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 kind of a mythical, legendary record. I love it. It's not my favorite Husker Du album. It's okay if it's not your favorite album, but I don't think it's okay not to like it. Yeah. I, I mean, <laughs> don't get me wrong. I'm glad that all that stuff's on there because I love you know the story of the album as much as the next guy. And, and I do like some of that stuff, most of it, actually. And I've listened to this album all the way through many, many times. Yeah, uh, me too. It was just, you know, I didn't need to listen to it all the way through for, you know, it's not one I needed to listen to, to to record this podcast, that's for sure. I know the album quite well, but... Yeah. So one one last point on Double Nickels, though. When I listen... We'll talk about it when we get to Double Nickels, but I listen to both of these records a lot from start to finish this week, I found myself, after I listened to Zen Arcade a few times through, kind of skipping past some of the chaff. There there was no skipping on Double Nickels for me. Well, I'll reserve my opinion on that until we get to Double Nickels. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Let's get into uh, Zen Arcade. History Lesson, Part 1. All right, uh, Brent, do you want to kick this one off? Well, I think we should start talking about the state of SST at the time, because, you know, ultimately this podcast is about the music, but it's also about a record label. And I really feel like this was kind of make or break time for SST with these two albums. They were obviously putting a lot of resources into releasing both of the albums. They're definitely two of the most important albums on the label. Uh, it's quite possible we wouldn't be doing this podcast without them. I think they, the success of the of the two albums funded much of what was to come next, and kind of gave SST huge clout. Um, not just, you know, attracting other artists to the label, but also financially and to help them uh, get money from their distributors. It seems like at that time it was really hard to get paid from the distributors. Like they had all the power. And when you have a, a couple successful albums like this that everybody wants, you can use it to uh, not only get uh, paid from the distributors, but I read a Grant Hart quote where he says like they would use Zen Arcade basically as leverage. What I had heard about like Zen Arcade is that they just, for the first run, it sold out immediately and you just couldn't find it in stores. Yeah. Well, that's kind of the... Uh, the start of maybe some cracks in the relationship. There's a quote in Bob's book where he says they only pressed up 5,000 copies to start with, even though the band had warned SST that this was going to be a huge album. But they SST was nervous because they didn't want to be sitting on a bunch of albums, so they only pressed up 5,000, and it sold out quick and wasn't available again, I think, until September until it was back in print, and I mean, they toured the entire year, basically, uh, with no album on the shelves. And Bob says in his book that that was the first crack in the bond between the band and SST. Yeah. He talks a lot about it in his book. He says they were trying to be the good soldiers. They had agreed to defer royalties to help SST with cash flow problems. He comes off as pretty resentful that Black Flag released four albums in 84. You know, but his his album went out of print. Yep. Uh, they were already a little bit irked with SST for including Real World on the Blasting concept with what they felt was a misogynistic uh, Pettibone cover illustration. And he says Landspeed Record had sold 10,000 copies, so they knew this album was going to be big. 
SST had shelved the album for nine months so they could release it on the same day as Double Nickels. Yeah, and by the time this came out, they're they're touring New Day Rising, right? Yeah. They're already out there playing a whole new album. Yeah, Grant Hart says, because we could work fast, it gave SST the advantage as far as collecting bills. So... <laughs> yeah, I guess so. But when the album came out, I mean, it got huge mainstream mainstream press and critical acclaim. It wound up on lots of year-end best lists, and you re- routinely see it today in all those, you know, greatest of all time or greatest of the 80s types lists. This one, this yep. one and Double Nickels. So, I mean, I'm yep. sure SST is still selling boatloads of these. Oh, yeah. You can buy it on vinyl, like on Amazon right now. Yeah. You know, this this is one of the ones that they will keep in, in print forever. Yeah. So, I, you know, I don't want to take away from, you know, Meat Puppets 2 or Damaged or any of the other bigger, bigger albums on the label, but I really feel like there's a good chance the label wouldn't have gone much further, maybe even without these two albums they I think they really did bankroll everything that came next and we're heading into like some stuff I'm looking forward to but definitely more of the friends of the band like October Faction type stuff or like the side projects or uh, bands that had already broken up like Worm and I'm not you know criticizing that stuff some of that stuff is really good but a lot of that was bankrolled I would say by by this album yeah, I think that's fair. So we we should probably talk about how this album kind of came about and also, you know, the recording and and what the album is about, right? Sure. It was recorded at Total Access with Spot in like a 45-hour session, mostly first takes for $3,000. Uh, Spot mixed it in like one 40-hour session. And that's definitely part of the myth of the whole mythology of the whole album. Absolutely. Is the, how quickly it was recorded. And, uh, apparently this, here's another interesting little factoid from Bob's book. They were, uh, sprinkling crystal meth into the coffee grounds in the coffee pot during that yep. recording session. <laughs> yeah. I read that too. So I can, there's how you can do a 40 hour, uh, mixing session. Yeah stay awake for a week and bang out a double LP Uh, in, in the songs, like it sounds like a spot recorded album. It sounds exactly the way it does because it's the way it should sound when it's recorded that quickly at total access by spot. Pretty critical of the, the Husker du records, the sound there. They're not my favorite sounding records but they sound the way they do, and I like them for it. If you listen to Zen Arcade next to Double Nickels, though, Double Nickels is on another level, sonically, in my mind. Yeah, I like the sound of this one, though. Yeah. Well, I'm not I'm not disparaging it. It's yeah. that I like it, too. It sounds like it was quick. Put yeah. it that way. So I read that they had a gig in Phoenix the day after the mixing session, and they really wanted to take a mix on cassette with them, which is one of the reasons they really uh, went hard to, to get it mixed. Yeah, and and just stylistically, too, we were talking about, I guess, before the chaff. There are a couple of songs on here that are very experimental, and but then there are you know some some of the songs, the sound that you started to hear develop on Metal Circus and certainly on the 8 Miles High version, like the Husker Du version of 8 Miles High, that sound. Still some hardcore sounding songs on this record, some acoustic songs, or at least one, and some piano. And you really hear, like, the mix is actually pretty good. Um, It just doesn't, it sounds quick, but, like, you can really hear Greg's bass on this record which i really like a lot of his runs it's a lot of stuff that you can tell a lot of uh bass players in kind of college rock or pop punk they probably took some cues from greg's bass lines and grant's drumming is we were talking on which album was it about bill stevenson oh it was on family man we were talking about how fast bill stevenson's roles are Grant Hart's drumming is pretty darn fast on this record, too. Yeah. And I can't remember the name of that pedal or whatever that 
that Bob Mould used, but he uh, that put the sheen or the shimmer on oh, it. Oh yeah, right, yeah. And uh, he definitely didn't spare any of that <laughs> on this record. But so I, still, I, I wrote mean, some notes down about where they wrote it. And in when. the church, right? Yeah. Summer of 83. So for all you hear about um, how much the band worked really fast, they, they took their time writing this one. Like they spent almost an entire summer of 83 prepping material in a former church in St. Paul that Grant lived in. Sounds like, you know, almost like a commune or a squat or something. Yeah. And they were dropping lots of acid and taking speed. In his book, Bob says they were listening to a lot of 60s pop and psychedelic stuff like that band, The Litter, he mentions. And he claims they came up with the concept while they were jamming at the church. There seems to be, like, differing opinions on that. Terry Katzman says, this is a quote, My opinion is that it wasn't envisioned as a concept in the pre-stage, but the post-stage. There seems to be two opinions. One is which... You know, it was all pre-planned, and another one was that the songs were just written, and they kind of realized, you know, in the studio that the, it could follow a narrative. Yeah, it's a bit of a blend um, from what I've read as well, too. That narrative is, like, you know, another reason that Zen Arcade was so, you know, recorded quickly, a double LP, but also a concept album was part of the the legend of Zen Arcade. Uh, well, Bob said, you know, I'm going to go with Bob because he was there. He said, says in his book that, that the track sequencing was decided prior to recording and those piano interludes, for example, were created in the studio to bridge songs ending and starting in unsympathetic keys. They're Yeah, they're pretty dissonant sounding, I yeah. would say. So they were hanging out in uh, October of 83 just as Metal Circus was hitting stores they were hanging out at SST, you know, leading up to the recording of it, playing gigs, I think, around the area, kind of sporadically. And uh, they spent three weeks in L.A. hanging out at SST, partying. This is the point in time where they tell Watt that Zenarcade is going to be a double album. Yeah. Them's fighting words. Yeah. <laughs> so that's where that whole thing starts. Yeah, well, Husker Du and the Minutemen did, like, an East Coast mini-tour uh, event like together in December, kind of right after Bob Mould told Watt about this. So Ryan, uh, speaking of the concept, there's a description of it in lots of the books and online and stuff. But one of my favorites was actually in Spray Paint the Walls, the Black Flag book that Stevie Chick wrote, and uh, he says Zen Arcade's storyline saw its young punker hero escape an abusive home life choosing instead to live rough on the streets, beginning a hallucinatory journey that takes in sadomasochism, religious cults, and hard drugs. Our hero exploited, abused, and molested by all whom he encounters, save for a kind-hearted junkie prostitute who fatally overdoses before the closing notes of Grant Hart's haunting Pink Turns to Blue. The fourth side closes with an epic 14-minute free jam, reoccurring dreams, which suggested the entire narrative was merely a bad dream provoked by sensationalist television news bulletins. Yeah, so safe to say that is like one of the first, if not the first, punk records to have that type of a thread from start to finish. Yeah. So it's definitely a, a huge landmark. Just like Double Nickels, it's a huge outpouring of creativity too. And I mean... There is there is a reason that this thing is um, so influential and people go back to it all the time. Bob says in our band, Could Be Your Life, there's a quote where he says, it was a coming-of-age work and we knew it when we were writing it. And at that time he was talking a lot in interviews about the album was going to go beyond the whole idea of punk rock and that kind of stuff. And yeah, he was pumping it up all over the place. Oh yeah, yeah. And he says in his book you know, that he felt validated be when Zen became so successful. And it was very successful. By the time uh, by the time it came back in print, I think in September, by spring of 85, it had sold 20,000 copies. Yeah, that's huge, especially for SST. And another interesting thing about it is, and they did this with uh, Double Nickels too, they did a sampler. 
um, yep. like for radio stations, but it's weird. Uh, yeah, this is the 12-inch that had 8 miles high on it, and they made a 12-inch because it was cheaper to ship. Yeah, well, here's what Joe Carducci says in the, uh, the Andrew Earls book. I just thought that our promo list was big enough that it might make more sense factoring in mailing costs to cut a one-sided disc with no cover and mail that. We found the average Mi Minutemen album had less impact with radio than did the 12-inch EP Buzzer Howl, where the non-hip could get a better handle on a smaller number of songs. Like, the songs on it, I thought were kind of weird picks. They picked uh, I'll Never Forget You to open the album, uh, Biggest Lie, two of, like, the heavier songs on the album, and then new Newest Industry, Whatever, Somewhere, Pink Turns to Blue, Turn on the News, Eight Miles High, and Recurring Dreams. Yeah, they didn't put Something I Learned Today. That's crazy. They didn't put Never Talking to You Again. Um, chartered Trips on there? You didn't mention Chartered Trips. No. So, I don't know. Those are odd choices to me. Yeah, I agree. Well, let's talk about... Um... The release itself, like the the artwork and stuff, it's it's a pretty famous image too. The cover, yeah. Paul talks about it a bit in the interview coming up. It's uh, a photo taken in like a auto wrecking yard, and we're assuming that Grant Hart doctored the photo. Well, it it is done by fake name graphics. I checked, so that's that's Grant. Yeah. Do you have this on vinyl or CD? I've got, so I've got two versions of the vinyl. I've got the SST version, and then I've got this, uh, another one on Aggressive Rock Production, which is a German label. So it's weird, you know, sometimes you just get these little coincidences in life. So I recently bought this book, like just last week, uh, called Damn the Machine. And it's the story of this metal label called Noise Records. And... I bought it because mostly because there's a big chapter on Voivod, whose first like four albums were on Noise Records, but some other metal bands like Creator and Celtic Frost and stuff like that. And the guy who started that Noise Records, his name is uh, Karl Ulrich Walterbach. He's a German guy. He he had a punk label before he had Noise Records called Aggressive Rock Production which he formed in 1980 and was there's a chapter on SST in this book, damn the machine or on. So, so yeah, sorry on aggressive rock production. Cool. And he talks about flying over to, uh, to go to LA in early 83 to meet Greg Ginn and Chuck Dukowski. And he's hmm. a huge black flag fan. He likes them. He's more, he's a metalhead, but he likes punk, but he really likes black flag because of, you know, damaged in my war. They're kind of, turning into they've got a more metallic sound which he likes and he offered them a european distri distribution and a tour of germany and this is one of the albums that they licensed to to his label along with uh, everything went black my war slip it in and new day rising and i went on their dis uh, discogs page just to see what some of the other stuff was that he released he released uh, a band, an album called Friction by a band called Field Day on this label. What? Yeah. Like from from Calgary? Yeah. Really? Really. Wow. You never you never stopped blowing <laughs> my mind. How do you like that, eh? <laughs> that is crazy. Wow. Well, I didn't know. And you, so you have two copies of this on vinyl? Yeah. You son of a gun. Yeah. The, the aggressive rock production one is... Almost the same, um, except the inside, like the liner notes and the lyrics, are black on the Aggressive Rock one, and they're blue on the SST one that I have. The spine is different. It says Aggressive Rock Productions on the spine, and there's no runoff grooves on the, on the German one, but there is on the SST one. I've only ever just had a CD of this. I'm curious to see whether there's any difference in terms of how it sounds. Is there a difference in sound between those two pressings? No, not not that I have heard. It has to be a pretty big difference for me to notice it, frankly, because of how shot my ears are. Yeah. There's a there's a few, we've mentioned them before, where I, I kind of feel strongly, but most of the time I don't really care. Do you want to 
go to the interview with Paul and we'll come back and talk about the record some more. Sounds good. History Lesson Part 2 Paul, uh, when did you start the uh, Husker Du database? Well, I started originally collecting information as far back as 1987, I think, when I started writing down uh, the names of all the albums and singles and everything and creating a little discography that I typed up and eventually ended up sharing it on Usenet. If you remember the old news groups before there was even a World Wide Web, that right. was probably the best way of of circulating information online was through various news groups. I posted it there a few times, and also I wanted to keep track of my live recordings because I had, around that time, started collecting tapes, you know, trading tapes with other people, and then that information got entered into it, and it just sort of grew from there. And it finally got to the point where I got my own home computer and a dial-up access to a Unix account and access to web and created the database itself online went live in july of 1998 wow so you've been at it for quite some time coming up on the 20th anniversary of the thing unbelievably how much of that did you have to seek out and do a lot of people come to you with stuff a lot of people come to me now originally i did you know i, I reached out to other people but you know now it's got enough visibility that people come to me. Plus, I'm always canvassing for information online and on social media, and asking for permission to use photos and that sort of thing. Of course, Google has been a real godsend as far as locating information and images and that sort of thing. Is there anything out there, like any white whales that you you know exist, but you haven't been able to to source? Well, I haven't been able to source or obtain. Well, obtain, I suppose. <laughs> well, I'm still looking for a copy of the Barefoot and Pregnant cassette tape. Okay. It came out on Reflex. Uh, there's one that's been up on eBay for several years now, but the guy wants five or $600 for it. That's a little out of my price range. Did they not do very many copies of that? No, uh, there weren't that many of them. I don't remember the exact run. I could look it up, but it would would just slow down the interview. <laughs> but it, w it was reissued on CD, so the tracks are available. Yeah. On its garage door label, we issued it back in the 90s sometime, or the early 2000s, maybe. Husker Du was a pretty heavily bootlegged band. Do you have any idea how many uh, live recordings you have? Oh, you would have to ask that question. I don't really know, but it's probably in the hundreds. In fact, I've just been going through all my... CDRs and DVDs the last few days, trying to organize them a little bit so I'll know what I have. I have not even cataloged them all. I mean, I have all the dates listed and set lists for shows that I have and that sort of thing are already up on the database. But as far as my own collection, I'm still working on the inventory. Do you have any favorites? Oh, the December 28th, 1982 show, I think, from Tucson that they included a few tracks on Savage Young Do. I think that's a very good show. I had not listened to it in a long time, and then the people from Numero were interested in it. And I listened to it again, and I thought, wow, this is really a great show. Was it a soundboard recording, do you know? I think that one was a soundboard recording. I can uh, tell you in a moment here. It's the one from the backstage. Yes, that was a sound. that was a soundboard recording. For the Savage Young Do box set, do you, what are your thoughts on that? Do you, did you already have a lot of that material? I had some of it, but there was an awful lot of really new stuff, stuff that I had not heard at all before. The tracks that were contributed by Henry Labonta, for example, he was a friend of Greg's going all the way back to high school, and he recorded all of the early Who's Do gigs, including, rumor has it, the two at Ron's Randolph Inn that they played with Charlie Pine when they played all covers for two straight nights. Okay. And I guess the, the third show they did was at the McAllister Student Union. Supposedly he has a recording of that, too. But these those tapes are not in circulation. As much as I would love to get my hands on them, I don't know that he's going to let them out. So we're specifically looking at the album uh, Zen Arcade. Do you have a favorite uh, track off of Zen Arcade? Or do you not think in those well, terms? Well, something I learned today is probably one of my favorite songs of all time. It's definitely in the top five, I would have to say that. But there are a lot of good tracks on it. Some of them I've heard so many times, like Chartered Trips, because that's still part of Bob's standard sets these days. Yeah. You know, I, I love the song, but I've heard it so many times that I've gotten a little bit numb to it. What do you think about the fact that Zen Arcade is looking like it's likely never going to get uh, a remix or a remaster? Are you okay with that, or do you 
Would you like to see something like that happen? I'd like to see somebody take another crack at it. I thought that Jeff Lipton from Peerless Mastering and uh, Maria Rice, his assistant, did a great job with the tracks on Savage Young Do. And I, I'd like to I'd like to hear what they could do with this with the tracks from Zen Arcade or or any but of that, the other ones that's for all, that matter. That's all, or the other SST recordings, yes, it goes across the board for the SST recordings, yeah, or even the Warner recordings. But um, that's all in the hands of the lawyers now, and uh, I don't know what the status of that is. Nobody seems to want to talk about it. I have no idea whether anybody's making any progress. But you know, this has been going on for years now. It kind of seems to get like the rights back to, to the masters. It kind of seems like Bob uh, is happy to move on from that period. Yeah, I I guess so. He did. He offered to buy out the other two members of the band. Oh, maybe ten, fifteen years ago, but they they didn't want to sell their interest to him. He thought maybe his lawyer would have more luck at getting the rights back than uh, the guy who was who had been working on it. But uh, they've got somebody else working on it now, and I have no idea what kind of progress he's. I don't suppose you have any idea how many copies of Zen Arcade have been pressed and or sold. No, I wish I I wish I could help you out there, but I don't. I just don't have that information. I, I don't know if anybody does. I know that they certainly didn't release enough at first. You know, and, uh, the guys in the band were not happy about it because here they were playing all these shows promoting the album, and it wasn't available in any of the local record stores. I can't even pin down an exact release date for it. All all anybody remembers is that it was released in July of 1984 on the same day as the Minutemen's Double Nickels on the Dime. But no one can pin down the date. Uh, I looked through all the old SST press releases and looked for reviews, and I can't find a release date anywhere. Maybe it sort of trickled out. Who knows? Yeah, it's weird. It's such a mythologized story about those two albums coming out on the same day. You would think that uh, they would know, considering they... They held back the release of Zen Arcade for quite some time to, to release them at the same time. I'm sure someone knows. I just haven't found that person yet. <laughs> uh, we were mentioning Bob. Do you have any favorite albums outside of Husker Du by the members? You know, I was thinking about that just today, and I think his latest album, Pat's the Sky, is as good as anything he's done since Husker Du. I really do. I have to say, I was not a huge fan of Workbook, and I'm still not that much of a fan. It was a big disappointment to me. I was expecting more Husker Du-type material, and that was very downbeat. But, you know, his, his, his albums, have all, they've all had something good about them ever since the end of Husker Du. Uh, some are better than others. But I think the last three that he did for Merge are all really good. At Pets the Sky, it's just outstanding. Yeah, I agree. Um, I'm interested in uh, what you know about the artwork for Zen Arcade. Do you know anything about... You have a really cool uncropped photo of the cover. Do you know where the pick was taken or uh, how that color was added to it? You know, it was taken in a junkyard somewhere in the Twin Cities. I'm not sure if it was Minneapolis or St. Paul. And Grant promised to take me there on one of my trips to the Twin Cities a few years ago, and we went to a bunch of other Fusca-related sites, but we never got to that one, and I never got the information from him as to exactly where it was located. I suppose maybe I, you know, Greg might remember. I might be able to find out from him, but I don't know exactly where it was. And I'm not sure who did the colorizing. I would guess it was Grant. That's what I would think, yeah. But I'm not sure if Fake Name Graphics got a credit on there or not. Because Fake Name Graphics is Grant's uh, nom de plume for his artwork. Yeah, it seemed like he was pretty heavily involved in all their artwork, so it would stand to reason that he would have probably been involved. I've heard a few people tell stories about Grant kind of showing them some of the sites. Do you, do you have any memories of that that you want to share? Grant took me to the church in St. Paul where the Zen Arcade rehearsals were. Okay. A, it was a desanctified church that uh, one of Grant's friends, I guess, had bought the building or something. At least that's what Bob says in his autobiography. And it was kind of a hangout for all the local punks, and a lot of them were doing acid and all that sort of thing. And they rehearsed there all during the summer of 1983. So Grant took me there, and I actually went back there when I was in St. Paul last summer for Grant's wedding reception. And I walked over to I walked over to the church again, and I walked to the Metal Circus building, where uh, it's used for the cover from the inside of the room where right. the the, uh, the Metal Circus cover was shot. Uh, Grant had taken me there. He's taken me to Hidden Beach, where the New Day Rising cover was shot. He took me to the twenty five forty one house, 
He took me to the bridge and refinery where the covers for Don't Want to Know If You Were Lonely and Sorry Somehow were shot. Wow. That just about covers it. Well, he he took me, he he pointed out the empty space where Cheapo Records was and where the cash register stood where he met Bob for the first time just off the McAllister campus in St. Paul. So, yeah, he's given me, Grant gave me quite an extensive tour of historic (laughs) Husker sites. Any idea how many times you saw Husker do? I only saw them once, I hate to say, and it was during the warehouse tour, and I have never been more excited for a music event in my entire life, because I had been listening to them for a couple of years by then. When my kids were growing up, I didn't go to very many shows at all, and it never even occurred to me that I could actually go out and see this band perform. My son was in high school at the time, so and I didn't know what to expect at a Husker Du show. I didn't know whether, you know... I had seen Decline of Western Civilization, and I didn't know whether Scary Punks were going to be throwing beer bottles or what it was going to be like, but it was actually a pretty sedate crowd. People stood on their seats. That was about as far as it went, as far as getting out of hand goes. But uh, I have to admit, I was a bit disappointed because all they did was play Warehouse in sequence with a couple of other songs on it, which is what they did on the early part of the Warehouse tour. And they came back to New England later in the fall and played at Providence, but I was not really plugged into the music scene. I didn't find out about it until I saw somebody list the tape up for trade. Are there any other bands that you follow, even closely to the degree that you follow follow Husker Du? Oh, boy, not to that extent, I would say. I like Super Chunk a lot. I would, you know, when, back in the 50s, I was really into Elvis for a few years, and then in the 60s, it was Dylan, and, and in the 80s, it was Husker Du. Those are my three great musical obsessions of my life. What was it about Husker Du that made you uh, want to follow them so intently? Is it just the music? It was the music. I had been listening to what used to be an underground radio station in the 60s, and its playlist gradually shrank to the point where it was... Uh, basically album-oriented rock that played the same stuff over and over again. And I got to thinking to myself, you know, I'm not hearing anything new. It's the same old stuff. And I started listening to college radio and discovered Who's Could Do. And I heard a couple of songs from Flip Your Wig that I liked, and I bought the album. And, you know, the first time I played it, it was it was love at first sight. I, <laughs> I couldn't believe how good it was. And I thought this band saved rock and roll. That's the first Who's Could Do album I got, so it's my it's my personal favorite. Do you Do you have a personal favorite album? It's probably that for sentimental reasons, if nothing else. But I, all four of the, you know, the big four, Metal Circus, Zen Arcade, New Day Rising, and Flip Your Wig, I think are unsurpassed by any other band. I think it's just an amazing string. I love all four of them. Especially considering, you know, how short a period of time that those came out in. It's pretty astounding. Yeah, it is. It's amazing that they were able to pull that off. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Any shout-outs you want to make or any of those white whales that you want to... Uh, ask anybody if they if they have? I don't think so, not really. Uh, I would hope sometime, maybe maybe Numero will do it, maybe somebody else, but I'd like to see the outtakes from Zen Arcade released officially at, at some point, some kind of fun and doesn't beat 11. They're, they're out on a number of vinyl and CD boots, but they've never had any kind of formal official release. That would, that would be nice to have, I think. These are the two tracks I've kind of read that maybe they didn't fit the uh, concept. I guess so. I'm not sure what their rationale was for not including them. But they're both really good songs. Everyone's heard them by now. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Paul. And thank you for, uh, you know, everything on your site. And it's a just a treasure trove for Husker Du fans. And it's it's great to have access to that. So. Well, thank you for having me on, Brent. I appreciate the kind words. I hope people do find the site useful. We're thrilled to have you. So thanks for doing it. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Okay. Well, thanks to Paul Hilkoff for for giving us that interview. That was really great. Yeah, definitely. Very cool to hear like someone who is the deepest of the deep into Husker Du share some knowledge there. Very cool. And you know, when I was listening to um this is going to sound, you know, I guess a little little strange, but he made, made me kind of feel like I'm not alone in terms of some some of my obsessions and uh, some of the <laughs> stuff some of the stuff that I do like you know one of my favorite bands of all time is a Canadian band called No Means No and in the 90s and early 2000s I used to like trade tapes by them like in the mail all the time around the world and you know I would get like a little padded envelope with another bootleg of them like 
and I would catalog them and I would listen to them and, you know, that's a different version of this song or they went into these tracks and, and I had something, you know, around 40 or 50, you know, cassette tapes of, and that is pales in comparison, uh, to the information that he has on Husker Du. Obviously Husker Du are more well known, but it's, uh, it's nice to know that there are others out there that kind of, you know, archivists totally. that keep that keep that information because it's super important. Yeah, it's it's really awesome. So let's finish talking about the artwork and the album itself and then talk about the tracks. Do you want to do that? Yeah, and don't forget the runout groups. I won't. This one's got great liner notes. It talks a lot about the recording. Uh, it's the SST version I have is Sestone Music copyright, which I don't know if that got changed on later uh, versions of this album or just later Husker Du albums, but that is Greg Ginn's publishing company. And I think I got this from Bob's book again. This Apparently the standard SSD, SST deal at the time uh, gave 25, 25% of the artist's royalties to Spot. Bob says they didn't understand publishing or mechanical royalties at this time, and Greg Ginn had control of the publishing prior to Zen Arcade through Sestone Music. They, at some point, realized, you know, how much money was on the table, and they complained and got their publishing back and divided it up through their own publishing company, Reflex Music. Yeah, so my CD version, Yeah. on, on the back, it says, you know, copyright 1984 Sestone Music publishing 1984 SST. I assume that's what P is for. But yeah. on the actual CD, it says copyright 1984 reflex music. Okay. My my CD version must be after they got wise to uh, the mechanic mechanical royalties there. The liner notes uh, talk about, you know, Bob played bass on Turn On The News, for example, and some stuff like that. It says Des sang on What's Going On and other folks sang on Turn On The News. But I always thought Des sang on uh, on Never Talking To You Again. Backup vocals. Yeah. Yeah, I read that somewhere too. Not according to the liner notes. Yeah. Whoever wrote the song uh, sang it. Reoccurring Dreams is live to two-track, no overdubs or funny stuff. I think I read somewhere that they just started jamming that in the studio and Spot hit record. Yeah. Kind of a happy accident. Everything on the record is first take, except for Something I Learned Today and Newest Industry, which started too fast. Spot did the yell on Standing by the Sea, and we all threw chairs during, during Pride. Grant did all the stuff to Harry Krishna, and Bob did all the stuff on Tooth Fairy. There were only two outtakes from these sessions. Dozen Beats Eleven and Some Kind of Fun. It's really chicken scratch on the inside of this, so it's hard to read, but... Oh, it's super hard to read. Yeah. <laughs> the whole thing took about 85, 85 hours, the last 40 hours straight for mixing. Carducci wants another album already, but not another double LP. <laughs> Which is a pretty famous part of the liner notes. Yeah. You want runoff grooves? Lay it on me. I've never, ever laid my eyes on them, so I can't wait to hear them. All right. Hold on. We got four sides of vinyl here, and I need to turn my lamp on because these are hard to see. Don't, don't forget to put your spectacles on, Grandpa. Yeah. Side one, falling, surely, every time I square off against someone's god. Side two, I spend the rest of the night or day hallucinating. That one's fitting. Yep. Side three, and now it is the vision's of a joyous hell. Side four. Within the circuits that make Pac-Men die and vessels disintegrate. <laughs> there you they go. Never, yeah, they never disappoint. SST had some of the best poets ever right in their runoff grooves. Uh, no doubt. That's off of the original SST one and you don't have runoffs on the German pressing. No. Does the German pressing, like... I've got some old SST records, like, I don't know if they're original, but they're probably early 80s or late 80s represses, and the cardboard is super thick, and you know how UK releases, 
the the jackets are shiny and it's a thinner cardboard is that what the german ones like no it's pretty much the same it's got a it's got a picture insert with some other stuff on aggressive rock slime do you know that band did you say slime yeah no i know voivod but not slime um this is yeah no this is punk stuff peter and the test tube babies they released a lot of misfits on here too Wolf's Blood, Evil Live, Meat Men and You Suck, Necros, except the description for all of them's in German. That almost sounds like they might have might have had like a licensing deal with Touch and Go or something too. Yeah. Uh, you want to talk about the music itself? Sure. I kind of wrote down some notes on not all of the tracks, but just some of them as I was listening to it. You want to hear what I wrote? You bet. Oh, these are these like your thoughts on it? These are my thoughts, maybe with some quotes that I found or something. Yeah, let's for the whole record. Uh, most of it. Okay, well, let's do it. Okay, so broken home, broken heart. Wait, well, wait a second. You have nothing to say about something I learned today? Well, it's probably going to be my pick for the ballot result. So okay, God dang <laughs> it. Okay, keep going. Uh, I wrote. I love the solo section. And the ending of the track. I'm pretty much going to agree with you on everything. Keep going. Chartered Trips, that's the beginning of the Bob Mold sound. Sounds like sugar. Agreed. Never Talking to You Again. Bob calls it one of Grant's best songs in his book. And uh, it's got some acoustic guitar, which is cool. And I'm, as I said, I'm pretty sure that's Des Kadena singing backup vocals. Yeah, I read not, that too. Not according to the liner notes on the album, though. Side 2 is just awesome. I love all of Bob's songs, Beyond the Threshold, Pride, I'll Never Forget You. Uh, the Biggest Lie ends with a one-note solo. And this is, again, from Bob's book. He says it's a song about sexual misadventure with a straight friend. That song, Pride, is, yeah. one, is one of my favorites. It's still pretty hardcore, but it's Zen Arcade-era hardcore, and I love that song. Yeah, me too. Bob says, of that side, he says... Blind rage, self-hatred, failed relationships, and confusing sex with love. He would psych himself up like a prize fighter to record. Like slap himself around. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, side three, which I have, I'm calling that the Grant side, although I don't know if, if it is. Standing by the sea, I wrote, I love Grant's vocal, otherwise that's a skipper for me. That song? Yep. Oh, I like that song. Somewhere. I love the backwards solo. Sounds like Jimi Hendrix. And you've got the piano interludes. Pink turns to blue. I love that song. Uh, I think the idea is that Pink is the girl's name in like the the storyline. That song gets tons of credit. It's on like lots and lots of lists of like the greatest song of all time type lists. That opening guitar riff. Yeah. I was saying about how many times I listened to Zen Arcade this week. That's that's one of the hair standing up on my arms riffs of all time. It's a really good song. Newest Industry's got piano in it. That's cool. Whatever I wrote, classic Bob. That has that song. Whatever has got some very striking lyrics in it about a, a kid um, and his parents. I mean, it's it's a really really the lyrics are so heavy. It's it's hard as a, even if you had the best parents in the world, as a teenager when you hear that song, it's hard not to relate. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Turn on the news. I like it. It's more of a classic rock song. Like at the end of the song, there's that part where they're making like monkey sounds, <laughs> yeah. and Bob just lays down like the ultimate classic rock guitar solo. That, that was... song, uh, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inducted it into their list of the 500 songs that shaped rock and roll. Yeah. In his book, Bob calls it a throwaway song. I, it's definitely not even close to the best song on this album. I mean, I like it. I, I think, I mean... Oh, there, are, there are 10 songs that are better than that one. Yeah. The, the rock and roll fame's idiotic choices are well documented. Just, <laughs> you know, the number of bands that haven't been inducted into it. It's really a farce. So I think, like... You know, they knew the importance of this album, wanted it to be reflected somehow on that it list, was, and this is the most digestible song for a bunch of uptight old men. Yeah, only to have, get some street cred for their yeah. stupid haul. 
And uh, Bob says, says in his book they recorded two more uh, that weren't up to snuff and didn't fit the narrative. So those would be the two that I mentioned that were in the liner notes. And Standing by the Sea is was recorded during the Metal Circus session, I believe. Well, I think this is a different version. Is it? Because, um, oh man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to forget. I don't think it was recorded during that session, but they recorded a version back then. And you can find that version on that new Numero box set. Right. I'm pretty sure that's how it goes. Okay. Here's another cool thing about, so the, the last track, Reoccurring Dreams, I found this on Paul's website. He says, dreams, do they recur or reoccur? For all vinyl releases of Zen Arcade, the titles of the two songs in question are listed as Dreams Recurring and Recurring Dreams on the record labels, but as Dreams Reoccurring and Reoccurring Dreams on the sleeve. For cassette, it recurs on both the shell and the paper inlay, and for CD, it's reoccurring on both disc and the back inlay. Wow, that's a level of detail. Yeah. That's what you'll find on, on Paul's website. Much respect, Paul. All right, ballot result. Ballot result. Okay, I think I know what you might be picking. Well, it's <laughs> it's not an easy choice for me. Like, I love Beyond the Threshold, Pride, I'll Never Forget You, The Biggest Lie, uh, Pink Turns to Blue, but I just think something I learned today, Paul says it in the interview, it's not just one of the best Husker Du songs, it's one of the best songs, period. Uh, yeah, I agree. I was going to pick uh, Pink Turns to Blue only because I think I mentioned it on an earlier episode as my favorite Grant Hart song when we were talking about when he passed away. But it's pretty hard to deny something I learned today, and it, it definitely has to be our ballot result. Right on. So everyone should now download part two of this week because we're doing a double drop this week. Double nickels on the dime. Well, let's go to Pedro. Thanks for listening, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>